Welcome to a new, brand new season for our Movies by Minutes collaborative project. This project entitled The Best Minutes Podcast. And each week, Movies by Minutes hosts will examine the 1946 William Wyler directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. Before we really get too deep into this, we should probably very quickly introduce ourselves. I'm Alan Sanders. I'm one of the hosts of the podcast, The Wilder Ride. And I'm Walt Murray, and I am the co-host of the podcast, The Wilder Ride. Now, they've been doing this. Uh, the, the Movies by Minutes community have been doing a collaborative project annually for a couple of years, but something's happened. Walt, you and I got into it last year for the first time. We, we were new to the group, and we, we had missed out on the second year, so we ended up being involved in the third year with the Hitchcock Minute. And Jim O'Kane, the, the leader of this project, sort of the, 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 the figurehead, um, had a a celebrity dr- randomly draw the teams out of a hat for Hitchcock Minute, and we had to open the Hitchcock Minute, which I thought put a lot of pressure on us because we had all these experienced movies by minutes folks, and we had to set the tone for the first 10 minutes. I don't know if either we did something right or wrong or if the fates are just <laughs> messing with Jim. <laughs> well, we somehow have to open this one this year in the, in the fourth run. Well, I think what happened is we set such a low bar in those first 10 minutes. Maybe that's it. <laughs> that everybody's like, oh, keep those two idiots up front. People will be like, this is a total train wreck. And then everybody will sound awesome after that. If we put the knuckleheads with no preparation and no idea what they're talking about <laughs> first, everyone's going to shine afterward. This is this is us. This really defines what the Wilder Ride is all about. <laughs> but... You know, in all honesty, I, I was taken off guard. Uh, I did not expect us to open this, and I don't mind it. I think it's awesome. It's just, it really, I feel pressure because I want, and I know we jokingly said, you know, we set the bar low, but I mean, I also want people who are stumbling across this or who may have not listened to any of the collaborative projects before, this may be their first time. You, you know, people, if they don't like something within a few minutes, they're out. They're never going to come back, even though. Even though this project is going to put, you know, 15 or 16 different teams of people together for the overall, you know, final final minutes of the movie. Well, one great thing about this is we we have seen the list of what teams have what minutes of this movie and there is not a weak team among the 15 or 16 teams that will be working on this. So anybody who's tuning in right now, if you don't necessarily like me and Alan for some crazy reason, um, skip ahead and check out one of the other teams. The, the The teams that are working on this are really, really great, and you're going to get a lot of insight into the movie. Uh, one strength, I think, Alan, that you and I bring to this, though, is that the first movie that we did was Young Frankenstein. So we have had to kind of work within that uh, black and white, uh, 1930s, 40s-esque uh, kind of cinematography. And even the the layout of having all of the credits at the front end of the movie, which you don't really see now uh, in modern filmmaking. Uh, we've kind of worked through all that before and kind of figured out from our perspective, what the best way to do this is. I think so. Um, and, and before we kind of dive into this, we, I do want to sort of explain to everybody that might be stumbling across it for the first time without getting too bogged down. What a movies by minute podcast really is. There are about 170 minutes to this particular film that we're about to talk about. 
And for every single episode of this podcast, minutes one through 170 will, it will correlate to episode one through 170. So think about that, Walt. We're going to have 170 episodes breaking down this movie, each team getting 10 minutes of the movie. So you and I will have the first 10 episodes where we only look at one minute of the movie for that episode of the podcast. That is, uh, that's pretty amazing. And that is a long movie, especially for that time period. That is a long movie. Yeah, just shy of three hours. Now, I do want to give a shout out to our friends in the Movies by Minutes community. And you, you mentioned uh, there's not a, a weak one among them. That is an absolute truth. Let's go ahead and just uh, for our, our folks to follow and for you folks at home that are listening for the first time, every 10 minutes is a new group. So the Wilder Ride, that's me and Walt. We're getting minutes one through 10. And then the next group, 11 through 20, will be the Rocketeer Minute. 21 through 30 will go to the Indiana Jones Minute. 31 through 40 is Two Minute Terminator. 41 through 50, the MASH Minute. Our good buddy, Father David Mowry, gets minutes 51 through 60. The Point Break Minute gets 61 to 70. Ghibli Minute, 71 to 80. Apollo 13 Minute, 81 to 90. And as we hit the 100-minute mark, 91 to 100, that's the Cock and Bull Minute. But then we're not done. The Real Jaws Minute gets 101 through 110. Better Off Dead, 111 through 120. The Bull Durham Minute gets 121 through 130. 131 to 140 is five minutes of Banzai. Then the Marine Corps Movie Minute, our good buddies who had just finished and wrapped up their season, Walt, they're getting 141 to 150. The Deep Blue Sea Minute gets 151 to 160. And the flick will wrap up with 161 to 170 with the Jay and Silent Bob Minute. I would highly suggest you check out all of those individual podcasts if you like those movies or franchises. One great thing on all those is that so many of these teams, either you and I both have been on their podcasts or we've got to be friends with them or one of the other of us is friends with one of the um, members of those teams. Uh, so we know all of these folks and all of them are great. They bring something really spectacular to the table. And then Father Dave is lining up a different guest for each of his 10 minutes. So you'll have Father Dave um, with his uh, brand of, um, of insight along with other people from the Movie by Minute group. So there's a lot to look forward to in this collaboration. Yeah, it's, it's such a cool thing. It's, it's like getting an assortment. It's, it's the Forrest Gump of, of podcasts. You get a little sample of something from everybody by the time you get done your box of chocolates here. So absolutely, I think to to really kick it off, uh, and we're we're kind of setting the stage. We won't spend this much time at the beginning of every episode going forward. Was just we're we're responsible for really getting this off the ground. And so I figured the first thing I wanted to ask is, even though this is not technically a war movie, it's a post World War II movie. It is kind of close to that war genre, specifically World War II. So before we dive into this, I wanted to see what you what your thoughts were on some of your favorite or go-to World War II movies that would have similar costuming, similar, you know, kind of characterizations, uh, vernacular that we, that we're seeing in this movie? Uh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I really have been a fan of World War II movies my entire life. Uh, probably my favorite movies in that genre are going to be, um, Torah, 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 Midway, and um, and then kind of in that on the other side of the world, uh, a bridge too far 
and um, Saving Private Ryan and some of those. And one thing that I have come to appreciate is how difficult the costuming and all that can be. And I think for the 10 minutes that we have, they did a pretty good job of giving you that feel of guys really returning home from the war. They did a great job of costuming and and setting the stage for all that. Yeah, when we get to the uh, costume director and start talking about the actors, the, the military costumes, of course, a lot easier to, to be correct because they filmed this pretty much on the cl- at the close of World War II. But it's a, I've got an interesting note here for the everyday actors back in civilian life, what the director wanted to try to achieve in terms of realness and, and familiarity for the vast majority of the American public who all were welcoming back their sons and daughters from, from combat. Uh, or, or, and I say daughters because there were folks serving in military capacity, even if it was a stateside doing a lot of work with the War Department and other agencies. So, you know, this was the movie that sort of was on the backside of the trying to return to normalcy after World War II. And World War II definitely was uh, was different from our perspective in that it was the last one where, you know, for us really, where the men and women who fought returned home to ticker tape parades and returned home as heroes, uh, somewhat from Korea, but you know, definitely not from the ones in our lifetime, Vietnam and and some of the others. So, well, you say that I do. Th- I, I want to make one uh, correction. I do think the war on terror, uh, the more recent, uh, and I don't know if it's really a, a world war so much as those other uh, locations like Korea and Vietnam. Uh, there was a shift back toward at least honoring and recognizing the yes. service. Yes, no, I do. Yeah. I do agree with that. But we haven't had like we won and everybody comes home all at once. You know, that, right, right. We've had you know guys rotate home or men and women rotate home uh, or come home you know wounded or whatever. But uh, we haven't had that big ending where victories declared and the ticker tape parades and all that kind of stuff. No, yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, before we get into them in the minute, I will say that when it comes to World War II, those tend to be the movies that I watch the most as well from as far as war movies, simply because those are the, those are the films my dad loved. And I, as a growing up as a kid, I'd watch so many of these war movies. Uh, Patton is still my all-time oh, favorite yeah, war Patton's movie. Yeah, Patton's great. Uh, it's more of a biopic, but it is so good. It is, it is one of my go-to movies. I do love The Longest Day. Uh, that was my favorite D-Day movie until... Obviously, the genius of Spielberg, you said Saving Private Ryan. That is a fantastic movie still. I love watching that. Much much more realistic and certainly uh, much more up-to-date and modern in terms of the, the, the visual effects of that movie. But um, I also like the movies in the Pacific. I like Midway. And Tora, Tora, Tora was one that we watched all the time. If it was on television, my dad was like, that, stop changing the channel. We're going to watch this now. Right. And, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, and I just grew up watching those same kinds of movies. So. This was an, a fun treat for me because I don't rem- I, I've never seen this until this project. I hadn't seen a post World War II sort of literally on the heels of, hey, we're coming home trying to figure out how to get a flight or how to get a bus or how to just make it home to be back with family, wives and or girlfriends and moms and dads. It really is a homecoming movie, but it doesn't glorify to the point where. You know, there, there's some darkness to this movie. There is a sense of, hey, people were hurt. People were maimed. People weren't even sure who they were anymore coming back home and what they'd lived through. And this is something that if you've talked to any combat veterans, especially anybody that have served, 
I had a chance to uh, interview a guy before he passed away who was in Patton's Third Army serving in Europe in 1944 when they, you know, marched across to try to get to Berlin. Um, he said, you can't explain to anybody what it was like if they weren't there and you don't even bother trying. Right. Yeah, that's kind of some of what my dad has said about Vietnam. And, um, and I actually had an uncle who was a, a bomber mechanic uh, stationed in England for the war. And he had some horrifying stories of, you know, the planes coming back shot up and guys wounded and dead and having to, you know, clean the plane up and keep it, keep them flying. And then he said, when the war ended, everybody kind of looked around and said, well, how do we get home? (laughs) And some of those were like officers who should have known. (laughs) So there was a little bit of this, okay, you got us here. We did our job. Now we got to figure out how to get back to Mississippi. And uh, so there was some of that logistic uh, craziness, logistical craziness, uh, just trying to get everybody back where they belonged. And, and of course, right after Germany surrendered, there was the idea that a lot of these guys are going to be shipped to the Pacific for the invasion of Japan. Right, right. Um, I like how this movie, though, really does start. I mean, it truly opens with a serviceman, a, a captain on a bomber which we find out over the course of the first few minutes, just trying to use the regular civilian, you know, early airline kind of industry and has to then go to kind of the, the, the undercurrent, I don't want to call it a cut rate, but it was like the military's version of air transport. And, and I don't want to jump ahead, but it, it set the tone for me watching it right off the bat of, okay, this isn't going to be a typical post-war movie, at least at that time. It was going to look at what three individual, I mean, because it really focuses on three guys, but how they feel their lives were affected having fought in the European theater or, you know, in, in the Pacific and then coming home and having to deal with trying to get back to normal. Well, I can't really even imagine what that has to be like. And I have a lot of friends who are military and uh, some have been in combat. And uh, that has to be a a really challenging adjustment to come back. So I um, going into this movie, I I didn't really know exactly what it was about. I tried to just watch it cold Mm -hmm. and it, it did give me even more of an appreciation for what they go through post combat, uh, trying to put their lives on track. Well, let's go ahead and get into it. If you haven't caught by the title and or the information embedded in this podcast called the, uh, the Best Minutes Podcast, it is about the movie The Best Years of Our Lives, and it is a 1946 Academy Award-winning film directed by William Wyler. Uh, it took seven total Academy Awards, including Best Picture, uh, it took Best Actor in a Leading Role, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Film Editing, and Best Music for a scoring of a dramatic or comedy picture. So it was a well-celebrated film, and one of the facts I had read is the best performing film at the box office since Gone with the Wind in 1939. That is impressive. That is really impressive. Yeah, now here's the cool thing. A lot of times people say, well, wait a minute, didn't it win a couple more Academy Awards? Why are you saying only seven? Uh Harold Russell actually was given two Academy Awards. He was given one before the Academy Awards were officially presented because the Academy thought he might be a long shot to win. 
So they gave him one and uh, basically said, you know, for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans through his, through his appearance in the film. And then ended up winning the Oscar for that very role. So he is one of the only actors in the history of Hollywood to receive an Oscar, two Oscars for the exact same role. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I'm just, the stuff I love when I, we do movies like this because I love getting into some of the behind the scenes, some of the trivia and some of the minutia. So let's go ahead and open it up. Uh, a typical start to a 1946, that 40s era film where a slow fade up to what looks like a title card that's being lit sort of diagonally as if the sun is hitting the background, but not lighting it up you know, completely. There's some shadow in the corners. And we see the uh, producer, I mean, huge letters, Samuel Goldwyn presents. So, you know, big name in Hollywood at this time. Oh, huge name, huge name in Hollywood. And of course, I, I think we all grew up after all the mergers and selling and buying and all that of all the, the studios in California. Uh, and Metro Goldwyn Meyer was, of course, the big one that we grew up with. But if you go through and look at the credits that that man has, he had an absolute, absolutely amazing career. And the credits just go on and on and on uh, for him. But just a couple of highlights. The studio's first release was September 6, 1923, uh, Potash and Paramuter. Have you ever seen that one? No. <laughs> get a definitive no on that one. Yes. I'm not even, I don't even have to think about it. A definitive no. Yeah. And then uh, the Eternal City after that. Um, I think the first one that I was kind of aware existed was from September of 1925, The Dark Angel. Um, and of course, most of these are older films that a lot of us wouldn't know. Um, but if you, you know, continue to move forward, his last movie just on his own was in 1959, June 24th release date, Porgy and Bess. And that was distributed by Columbia Pictures. He had a 1952, a movie on Hans Christian Andersen, uh, or if you're in the South, Hans Christian Andersen. <laughs> um, there were a ton of movies that they came out with. And then later, of course, uh, they merged with, um, with the other um, studios to become Metro Golden Meyer and went on to just, you know, thousands of movies, literally. Well, I think it's interesting. One of his latter, latter production or producer credits was guys and dolls, a movie that Spielberg is in the midst of remaking and will eventually release. Uh, everything, everything put in kind of a delay with the 2020 or 2020 year, uh, COVID delays, but yeah, guys and dolls being remade by Spielberg himself. Well, and, it's interesting that he's doing that because one of the one of the comments that somebody had made about him during his career was when you saw his name associated with a movie, you knew it was going to be great. So he had that same high expectation that Spielberg had, and I'm sure with all these titles, not all of them were great. Right. Well, but I will tell you this: as a producer, he was also, yeah, I would say, famous, but maybe infamous for overstepping maybe his bounds and doing things for a production that he was producing that would get directors ticked at him. And in fact, the director of this movie was upset over a few things that Samuel Goldwyn was doing with the movie, including the, one of the lead actors, one of the actors that he cast, the one who received two Academy Awards, 
uh, sent him to uh, acting school saying, okay, we need to get you to learn how to be a little bit better. And William Wyler's like, no, no, I love his delivery as is. And now you're ruining everything. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he, he got his, now granted, it was that time in Hollywood where producers, you know, they were managing several projects every year simultaneously. And they were the, the ones responsible for the overall, hopefully bottom line and trying to make a successful product. But he liked to get his hands involved in the projects that he was producing. Well, he also had an understanding of how the entire process worked. I mean, he he was one of the he wasn't just a suit sitting in an office somewhere. He he knew how to make a movie. So that had to be a temptation for him all the time of getting in and getting involved. Of course. So we move on from uh, Samuel Goldwyn Presents. And uh, we get, you know, kind of that fade out, fade in to the best years of our lives, all caps across the screen, music playing. And then very quickly, we get our first list of actors. And, and they're, they're not messing around, considering some of the movies we have talked about. And you mentioned doing Young Frankenstein, that was sort of a, a 70s version throwback to this era. But it was, I mean, there's no individual names outside of Samuel Mayer at the beginning here, or Samuel Goldwyn at the beginning. You know, we get right off. Myrna Loy, Frederick March, Dana Andrews, Teresa Wright, Virginia Mayo, and then introducing Kathy O'Donnell all on one title card. Uh, can I ask a real quick production type question? Sure. So I know we talked about this uh, years ago when we did Young Frankenstein, and I should probably know the answer to this. Uh, this, of course, was before CGI and all the computer animation stuff. How did they do those boards? Were those actual boards that they took pictures of, or do you know? I don't, I'm not sure the exact techniques here, but it's very similar to where, like animation, where the letters are all laid out, and they film the, the letters on a, on a background, and then they can just fade over top when they bring the film and sort of overlap the film as they're changing out and uh, use lighting techniques to bring up and down the, the lighting. Gotcha. I don't know why I kind of got stuck on that question earlier today when I was <laughs> rewatching these minutes and I was like, wait a minute, this was, this was before things were easy. How did they do this? <laughs> you know, they, well, they've been putting credits in movies for a long well, time. Well, I knew they had, it was just <laughs> like all of a sudden I'm going, Hey, wait, how, how did that work? <laughs> this, <laughs> it's amazing what you got fixed. It's, it's not chiseled in stone and it doesn't look like, you know, so anyway, I, I, for some reason, that question popped up in my mind, and I thought you might be the one who knew the answer. But um, you know, well, I, I, you know, I know technically like how things would would have been done. How this particular one was done, I, I couldn't tell you. I don't have a, I don't have the manual beside me saying you know how they decided to do your title credits for this movie. But um, the one thing that I, I was struck with is everything's all caps. Yep, and everything like. Altogether, there's no individual person, even though technically Myrna Loy was given top billing. That's why her name was first, because she was the most probably at that time recognized name in Hollywood. I, I get the feeling right off the bat, the director was trying to make you realize you're watching an ensemble movie. It's not about one person. It's really about all of the characters, even though you've got kind of three leading males. It really is an ensemble. Yes, yes, it is. And this will be the last rabbit trail for the next few minutes. But one of the things that I think is really cool about that time period is some of the names of people and how some of those names have kind of fallen out of, uh, um, out of use like Myrna and, uh, Hoagie. Have you ever met anybody in Hoagie? 
Never met anybody, and that'll be on the next title card. Hoagie Carmichael. I know the name, but I have never met the only Hoagie I've met. I, I see are the ones you eat, right? And I've met my fair share of those. And then on that <laughs> on that second card, um, Roman uh, Bowen, and uh, then of course Victor. I do know a couple of Victors, um, but it, it, I, I'm always kind of struck by some of the interesting names that are no longer really in use. And, and of course, somebody named Roman is going to send me an email and be like, look, Jack, I'm, <laughs> I'm proudly Roman. Let me give all the names then on that next title card that starts about two thirds, uh, excuse me, about uh, uh, one third of the minute in. Uh, we do start off with Hoagie Carmichael, Gladys George, Harold Russell, Steve Cochran, Roman Bonin, Ray Collins, and Victor Cutler. Um, before we just kind of go way and gloss over all these, um, some of these characters, like Myrna Loy, were involved in a lot of films, and I know you tend to look at the backstory. We don't want to get too muddled down. Everybody's got access to IMDb. I would highly encourage you to just go on an afternoon adventure looking at some of these names and, and realizing just how many films they all did in their careers. But uh, we, we, we can't just run past Myrna Loy because she got top billing for a reason. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, for one thing, she, in my mind, is a just extraordinarily attractive lady and um, and a great actress. But she started acting in 1925. And her first, well, you know, it's uncredited, but the first thing she was in was called Pretty Ladies, where she played Showgirl. Uh, the first credited thing that she was in was What Price Beauty? Sorry. What Price Beauty in 1925, where she played Vamp. And then in 1926, she played the maid in a movie called The Caveman. Um, and of course, that was at a time when you might do eight or ten movies a year, and she was, you know, not a top top bill at that point. But, you know, starting in, in 1925, her last uh, credit is 1982 where she was on a uh, an episode of a show called Love Sydney and she uh played Verna Lonning. I remember that show just a little bit. Do you you recall that show, Alan? No, I don't. It was just kind of your typical, you know, typical sitcom, but it starred Tony Randall. Oh, no. I So I, I I either it was on and I didn't notice it or I know that was in the early 80s. I just don't remember that show at all. Yeah, early 80s, and it was just a good sitcom, and of course, Tony Randall was great. Uh, but she was also a, a couple of other that I'll mention, Airport 75, which is one of my favorite movies growing up, where a 747's flying along and a Cessna crashes into it mm -hmm. and uh, kills both of the pilots, and so they spend the rest of the movie trying to keep the plane from crashing. Uh, she was on the show called The Virginians. She made a uh, uh, an appearance on Columbo. And she was in tons and tons and tons of stuff. Uh, she was in the original 1950 version of Cheaper by the Dozen. And all in all, she has 142 acting credits. So pr prolific, I guess, would be the right word. Yeah. I want to mention one particular franchise that, you know, you, you, you think about things like, Oh, the Rocky movies spawned now six sequels and Jaws spawned, you know, four sequels and, you know, Star Wars had three and then they had to go and do three and then three more. And so you start saying, 
when did they have all of these sort of sequels? It must be something newer. If you go all the way back to 1934, Myrna Loy and another actor by the name of William Powell did a movie called The Thin Man. Yes. And it became such a well-loved story of these two that the huge success led to five sequels. Did you know that? Because I didn't. I did not know that. That that is yeah, crazy. Yeah, and in fact, you can get the complete Thin Man collection even today on Blu-ray. Uh, excuse me, on uh, I think it's DVD, but you can get it on Amazon and get all of them. They're shown on classic Turner movies a lot. But yeah, they made five sequels to the Thin Man, and I think it was uh, things like um, uh, After the Thin Man, Another Thin Man, Shadow of the Thin Man. Um, the Thin Man Goes Home and Song of the Thin Man is, I think, what wraps that up. So, wow. Uh, just, I, I, I was blown away going, wait a minute. That's like, you know, that's like the Rocky series back starting yeah. in 1934, the first movie. And in the, the final one was shot in 1947. So they kept coming back. And the two actors, uh, both Powell and Loy, uh, did both, did, were in every one of the movies. Well, I guess this is a good time for me to make an announcement, Alan. Um, I have been cast in a biopic. And or was it, it a is, biopic? <laughs> it, it is a biopic about me. It is called Not a Thin Man. Because I was going to say, and, whenever I think of you, I'm very biopic. <laughs> <laughs> a little myopic, yes. actually. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, but look for that in theaters. Uh, it's basically following me around eating hoagies. <laughs> so. <laughs> We revisit the material of the thin man, and we're going to call this the large man. <laughs> the the humongous man. <laughs> Jeez, so Pete. All right. Um, were there any other actors you wanted to take a second to call out before we continue on past uh, the next title card? Uh, I, I really wanted to focus on Myrna Loy at the beginning, simply because she was you know, one of the original Hollywood, you know, Hollywood starlets, and she always played those characters that were sort of smart and fun, she wasn't just sort of like the dumb character or the 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 damsel in distress. I mean, she played a very smart character in a lot of her movies. Yeah, and one thing about her that I thought was cool, I, I saw that there's an interview that she, uh, when they were talking about her early career, she kept getting cast as this kind of, um, you know, vampish, um, you know, maybe not, you know, loose woman, but you know, kind of a, you know, that kind of woman. And, and she was like, I'm a smart person. I, I have this talent. I want to get past this. And so she then started getting some better roles, but I just thought it was neat. That that's what she really focused on is that she wanted to get past those roles to really intelligent roles. And I don't know if it was necessarily her fault. It was Hollywood at the time. She came into, into, into acting out of a dance background. So she was sort of that secondary character initially and she had to kind of fight her way for uh speaking and then and leading roles and for whatever reason a lot of times like oh you're a dancer so you just got a body and you just look good and that's all we do with you and she's like no yes right (laughs) no (laughs) right and you know one other interesting thing about her and this will be the last thing on her is that her dad was the youngest congressman ever elected from the state of montana well there you go that's something i didn't know and he died of influenza so uh, at age 31. So that was kind of an interesting little bit of, of trivia. But the only other person I wanted to mention on that first card is Frederick March. And he's kind of the second name there. He was born in 1897 in Racine, Wisconsin, uh, died in 1975 in Los Angeles. But he also was very prolific. Uh, 
well, he had 88 credits, but he was in uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is probably the main one that we would know him from. Wow. And so, uh, and that's kind of the original Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1931, where he played Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Excellent. Um, I want to talk about one of the actors on the second title card specifically, because he is one of the three characters we follow, and that's Harold Russell. I uh, already mentioned he got two Academy Awards for this picture. Uh, he actually was discovered by the director because he was in a war, a, 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 a Department of the Army produced film to help disabled veterans with understanding how to go through the, the various therapies available mm -hmm. and some of the things that the, would help with vets trying to reacclimate to normal life. Um, because when I saw the trailer to this, I thought, oh, they got an actor to pretend that he had it was a double amputee. No, he was a true double amputee. He lost both his hands in, a, in an accident uh, holding explosives. They blew his hands off. And so he learned how to work everything with his, uh, his, his uh, um, prosthetics, uh, which at that time were more hooks and some very basic kind of rudimentary functionality. And he was a true, uh, you know, amputee, double amputee, and was doing films for the army. And the director said, you'd be perfect for this movie I'm getting ready to do. They actually rewrote the role. It was supposed to be somebody suffering from combat fatigue or combat stress, and they decided to make it somebody who came home with a uh, with a physical disability and trying to reacclimate without having two two hands. Well, I'll tell you, it was impressive to watch him um, manipulate the cigarettes, to manipulate the match, to light matches and everything. I was blown oh, I, away. I was too, and, and I was thinking, if this guy is an actor who's doing it. That's really incredible, but I mean, just how do you do that? I mean, how do you learn to do that? Uh, but he he was awesome, and it was really fascinating to watch that go down as he as he was doing that. You know, what's crazy is because he recognized. I mean, he was in the military. He did lose his hands. He knew that, but he was trying to do what he could to help veterans understand. Look, you can continue. You can survive. You. And he was very, very uh, uh, dexterous with his prosthetics. Um, he made a point because he knew it'd be awkward the first day on the set. And so he made a point of making everybody shake his hand, his prosthetic hand, um, to make sure everybody realized, hey, I know I've lost my hands. I know these are hooks. But you know what? We're making a movie. Let's have fun. And put everybody kind of at ease with his disability. Uh, you know, that's interesting. Um, when my dad went through sniper training with the FBI, uh, the guy who was doing the training was a um, Medal of Honor winner. And my dad, they didn't, he didn't announce that at the beginning of the class. But he, uh, he's going through and he says, okay, so everybody look at me. This is very important. And he said, when you're looking through the scope, you have to keep the, um, the lines lined up with your target and keep your eye on the target. And he pulls his eye out and starts throwing it up and down in the air. And so everybody's like, oh, my gosh. So, so after class, of course, everybody's like, what is the deal? And he was a Navy SEAL who got his eye shot out in Vietnam. Mm. And here he was, an FBI agent training snipers and how to shoot. 
And uh, well, talk about breaking the tension and getting everybody a sense of like, oh, I mean, taking your glass eye out. Oh, yeah. With it, that's- well, and he said, he said, I just didn't want anybody else, anybody to be distracted by it or anything else. He said, I just want to go ahead and get it out there on the table. And then he started telling them stories of like the eye coming out in the swimming pool. And <laughs> um, one night it fell out in a beer mug. So he was, he again was kind of one of those people who had been through some kind of tragic. Uh, trauma in combat and was able to turn that around and um, and find a way to live with his disability in a positive way. You know, and that's that really is if you talk to anybody, uh, the vast majority of folks that have any kind of a, uh, a, a, a physical disability or handicap or whatever, you, you know, you want to call it. If you just treat them like there's nothing going on, like that makes them like that's the best thing in the world. They don't want to have it called out. They don't want to have it be a distraction. They don't want to be like, oh, woe is me or pity me. They're like, no, no, you know, stuff happens. Just move along. And uh, I, I love the fact that he told that story about being on the set and saying, you know, I'm just going to shake everyone's hand. We're going to deal with it day one. And that way we don't have to worry about it ever again. Yeah, that's great. Um, we go right onto the next title card at the, at the 32nd mark. By the way, we're at 40 minutes in and we're... <laughs> 40 minutes of discussion, of course. 30 seconds of screen time. Uh, Robert E. Sherwood uh, gets the screenplay credit to his to himself on the screen. And that was one of the, the people to win the Academy Award for best screenplay. Well, I think he deserves it. I, I cannot imagine turning this into a three hour movie um, that that was a daunting task. Well, there was good reason for it. Um, the cool thing about Robert Sherwood is he actually, during World War II, he had been the head of the Office of War Information and was one of the reasons why Samuel Goldwyn approached him to adapt the, the novel into the script because he had a military background and he was used to war correspondence, the way you would report on things or the information you would release and how you would massage it. And he wanted somebody who was comfortable with sort of the vernacular as well as the, the military lifestyle to adapt the novel for screen. Okay, well, that makes sense. I knew I had a fact there somewhere. Huh? I, and I think that was that was a wise <laughs> choice. You you really needed somebody with that military experience to go at this. Well, I think when you're going to do a heavier movie, you want to make sure you're doing everything you can to be as accurate. You didn't want it to be a caricature. You didn't want it to be uh, mocking or somehow maybe even um, bringing down the heroic status that all World War II veterans were given. I think this was just the director and the entire production company wanted to just say, hey, you know, we make all these movies about all the heroism of warfare, but these guys, they were forever changed. And this movie is about that. Yeah. And I think that the indelible mark of combat is hard to explain unless you've been there. Unless you've been there. The next screen is an indication that, of course, the screenplay did, in fact, come from the novel by McKinley Cantor. And we go immediately into one of those, you know, screens that has kind of like all of the other crew that's sort of important uh, for this time frame. They would do things like this where you'd have the, the title card where art direction, film editor, costume design, set decoration, makeup, hairstylist, sound recorder, music and music direction all on one screen. And just because it's the last one of these kinds of title cards of, of, of crew, they even add, hey, this was recorded on Western Electric. And all characters and events depicted in this photo play are entirely fictional. And I love this. Any similarity to actual persons living or dead or actual events 
is purely coincidental. I think World War II was an actual event. <laughs> right. People did actually come back and fly in planes <laughs> to go home. I'll get into the names in just a second, but I also found out, did you know with this production, this was 1946, this was the first movie, at least that's what I read about, that was recorded in, with a stereo soundtrack with a dedicated left and right channel. No, but very I did few not theaters. That. Very few theaters had the multi-track ability to play the sound uh, left to right, so you may not have gotten a stereo production in your theater when you watched it, but initially it was considered the first film of its era to be recorded with multi-track with a left and right channel. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, pretty cool. Uh, let's go through uh, the names just so that way we, we give the shout out. Um, we're not going to, I think, dive into any of these folks necessarily. Uh, we do have Perry Ferguson and George Jenkins. They were art direction. Uh, and it, we'll get to art direction maybe, and others are going to talk about it as well. But in terms of the backdrops and everything, it's a very realistic looking movie in a lot of parts. There's not like the big giant Hollywood sets. You don't even get the sense of big Hollywood budget for costuming. And there was a reason for that. Um, we'll get to it over the course of the next several episodes. And then I'm sure others will talk about it. Uh, film editor was Daniel Mandel. Costume designer was Sharaf, set decorations by Julia Heron. Makeup was Robert Stefanoff. Hairstylist was Marie Clark. Sound recorder, Richard DeWeese. Music was by Hugo Friedhofer. And musical direction, Emil Newman. Hugo is definitely another one of those awesome names that isn't around much. Well, one of my favorite actors is Hugo Weaving, and I love him. He may be the only Hugo born since 19. <laughs> oh, there's lots of Hugos. It just, but you're right. It's not as, uh, not necessarily as well used today. Yeah, I guess it's like the name Walt. So. Uh, Walter, Walter. Yeah, <laughs> every time I, every time I say Walter, I'm always yelling it like the Big Lebowski. <laughs> Walter, get your toe. <laughs> yeah, my name gets yelled a lot, so I. Uh... I get it. All yeah. right. As we start to wrap up this minute, director of photography is the next name. And that goes to Greg Toland. And uh, I don't know if you did. Did you pull anything on him? Because that's a, one of the bigger you know, elements of a production is if you've got the, 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 the director of photography. He's the guy that literally is behind the camera. Yeah. So um, Greg Toland was a uh, he's definitely a Hollywood mainstay. He uh he was born in Illinois in 1904 and died in 1948. So kind of a young guy, but he was uh, the cinematographer for Citizen Kane for Withering Heights, The Grapes of Wrath and 68 other movies. So he, just a handful of kind of throwaway kind of who knows what movies those are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like Citizen Kane. Have you ever heard of that? Um, yeah, it's, it's I don't know. It's kind of on the tip of my tongue. Sort of a rosebud. thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. So kind of well known in his in his profession. And his first film um, was uncredited. 1926. The Bat. <laughs> His first credited movie was also 1926, The Winning of Barbara Worth. I don't know anything about either one of those movies. And uh, then, of course, uh, a younger man when he died. His last, uh, his last movie uh, credit was Enchantment in 1948, which was two years after The Best Years of Our Lives came out. Very, um, a very gifted uh, cinematographer, director of photography. 
uh, especially when you're working with Orson Welles, when you're doing such classics as The Grapes of Wrath, Citizen Kane, as you mentioned, Wuthering Heights, you look at the the lighting. I mean, as a cinematographer, it's not just about the framing. It's where is the camera moving? What's it capturing? How is the scene or the frame lit? How are the actors lit? You, you're creating the mood. Uh, when I do a lot of video work, my my cinematographer or director of photography, it's so funny. When we'll get done with a take, I'm like, well, how did that sound? He goes, I have no idea. I'm just looking at what it looks like. And that's all they care about it. You know, that's their job. It needs to look like how the director wants it for the feel, for the for the tone, for what's happening in the scene to help visually tell the story. Yeah, well, that makes sense. And I, I have, I'm not an expert on film and, and movie, as you well know, uh, but I have learned so much just going through Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles about the differences between black and white film and color film and how so much of the mood and tone of black and white was totally based on lighting because you didn't, you can't have color. You can't have uh, any of that stuff. It all has to be done by lighting. So the cinematographer had a hugely important job, obviously, but a really difficult job as well. And, and that's still, even though we've got color today, it's still as important when you've, when you're watching a movie and you're just like the mood feels creepy or the mood feels happy and bright, or it's alive. Those feelings that you just, they didn't come out and tell you, Hey, you're supposed to be happy in this scene or Hey, you're supposed to be scared. You just sense it and feel it. And when it's really well done, um, it's why there's an award for it because it just will immediately have an impact on you because you're pulling in this visual stimuli. The last card we get to, it's sort of like how we open. We open with a Samuel Goldwyn production. And so we wrap uh, in this minute with produced by Samuel Goldwyn. Well, that makes sense. And I don't know that there's a whole lot more to say about him, but he obviously made it. That's a, about all we got to say made about a good that. movie. <laughs> yeah. So, all right, as we wrap up, and again, they spend a little more time than we normally would in this episode, trying to sort of level set what the project is, all the people involved, kind of getting our backgrounds, and we didn't even talk about our Wilder ride, although you did mention what we talked about in the first season. Um, As we close out, uh, let's go ahead and uh, let the audience know a little bit more about us. Yeah, Alan and I host a uh, a podcast called The Wilder Ride. Uh, Season one, we did a movie by minute. Uh, breakdown of the great black and white Mel Brooks classic, Mel Brooks and Gene Wilder classic, Young Frankenstein, and had guests from uh, all kinds of places. A lot of movie by minute folks joined us, and we also had a medical doctor and an actor. We had quite a few people join us there. Then in season two, we did Blazing Saddles, which was a bold project on our part, and I uh, had a lot of fun with that. Jim O'Kane joined us. A lot of other folks did as well. Uh, so you can check out both of those on any podcatcher or on our website at thewilderride.com. Uh, season three has been a little bit different with uh, the COVID explosion and some other personal things going on in our lives. And we ended up interviewing 29 of our best friends. 30. 30, 30 of our 30 best episodes. friends. So, and that ranged from podcasters to uh the astronaut who will be commanding the International Space Station here shortly to a guy who has uh, led five expeditions up Mount Everest uh, to a, um, a retired motorcycle cop who uh, lost a couple of family members and then rode his motorcycle all the way across the United States, uh, across North America, mostly Canada, and uh, just a host of other people. So. Uh, check that out again, uh, thewilderride.com or anywhere you uh, you find um, 
podcast. And then we also have a Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash the wilder ride. You want to follow us there and then join our listeners group where it's all fun and games. You know, it's about our podcast, about Gene Wilder, entertainment in general, and what's going on with our show. So uh, we'd love to have you along for the ride. And we want to encourage you to stick around. I know we just launched this podcast, but we will be going through every single minute of this Academy Award winning classic, The Best Years of Our Lives. You can learn more by going to the Best Minute Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or you can visit the main site, the website, thebestminutes.com. And if you'd like to be involved social media wise, if you want to discuss the movie, you want to discuss what we got right, what we got wrong, who you like, who you don't, what was. What, what else maybe needed to be chatted about or just your background in movies, whatever, you can visit Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listener Cafe on Facebook. And on Twitter, you can also follow the, the Twitter account, The Best Minutes. So until tomorrow, come on back for another amazing look at this movie where Walt and I will keep breaking down the opening 10 minutes of the best years of our lives. I hope everybody's not expecting this to be as long-winded tomorrow. Oh, you know what? I don't know. Can we break this up into just the 10 minutes and just say that the first <laughs> 10 minutes were credits? I, I, we might be able to. Uh, Jim might know the difference, though. G- I think Jim might. Maybe a handful of others might. I mean, I don't know. All right, well, we'll I'll wing it. We'll figure it out. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor. And uh, I guess... I'm not sure that's the best way to do this. Um, (laughs) We're off to a good start. Yeah, hang on. I meant to get to him and I forgot. Give me just a second. Sure. Uh... Again, the magic of editing. Yes, exactly. Exactly.